Life is full of what ifs. Some awesome, like what if AI could fold your laundry? And some, well, less awesome, like what if you have unexpected medical costs? United Healthcare can help get you covered with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. They supplement your primary plan to help you manage out of pocket costs. No deductibles, no enrollment periods, and especially no more what ifs. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15 stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rose, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. That's the second time it's gone off. They never go home, they never go home, they never go home, those, those, those boys. That's... Yeah. They have asked for that, really. Well, you can laugh. I'm the World Cup. I'm a little bit of an idealist, but having said that, I want to be like me. But you know what you're talking about. What did you want? I'd like to stay alive for six days. I'd say to you, face, I'll say to you now. What are you doing down here, you show me, man? It's the Irish Times Second Captain's Football Podcast at the start of a Champions League week. It's a week that Liverpool might be dreading a little bit at this stage. Real Madrid at Anfield on Wednesday after falling over the line against QPR. Real, in the meantime, smashed in five goals in La Liga. Two of those by Cristiano Ronaldo. I have noticed one quality that M- Ronaldo shares with Mario Balotelli. Uh-huh. Uh, there's not, a, there aren't enough of those qualities, I would say, from a Liverpool sports point of view. But that is that both of them have an absolute abhorrence of anyone else in the team scoring goals. <laughs> you see this with Ronaldo all the time. Remember what was the Champions League game recently? Where he well, it could have even been last season. Where he smashed one off the bar, and uh, Benzema or someone followed up and, and <laughs> knocked it in to the empty Ronaldo net. Ronaldo was crestfallen. Ronaldo was that was against Bayern? Practically pounding the ground in disgust that his shot hadn't gone in. This happens all the time, but at least with Ronaldo, that self-centeredness ends Equates up benefiting. two goals a game. Yeah, it does. It really benefits the team. Whereas there was a moment in the Liverpool game, yes, a very memorable moment, when uh, free kick given against uh, for a foul on Raheem Sterling. Raheem Sterling takes it, takes it quickly, starts that little move that ends with Richard Dunn. Wasn't that Richard Dunn's own goal? I think yeah. it was. Balotelli's involvement in all that was to skulk around the penalty area with his back to play along with a lot of the QPR defenders he only eventually turned around realised the ball he happened to glance over his right shoulder at one point realised that the play was ongoing he was the last man in the stadium to realise that Had then thought oh I might have a chance to score here sees the ball being knocked off Richard Dunn into the goal and then just turns away in disgust well, not really disgust it's hard to read Balotelli but he looked kind of disappointed mm. that Sure, his team had got a goal, but that he hadn't managed to get one of them. So that's that's it, Ken. That's, that's the only real quality I can see that the two men share and that doesn't give Liverpool a huge amount of hope. Well, there is there's one other thing, actually. Yeah. Um, if you look at the top five European leagues, um, Cristiano Ronaldo is number one and Mario Balotelli is number two on which key statistical measure. And it is a key statistical measure. I mean, of all the players in the top five leagues, Ronaldo, one, Balotelli, two. It's not yes. goals. It's not goals. Ronaldo is top in goals. He's got... It's not uh, assists, though, is it? He's got 17 goals now. Ronaldo's only got, like, two assists. Yeah, I was wondering. I mean, Tadic got four on the weekend. <laughs> yeah, you know? yeah. um, Headers? No. No. Shots. No. Shots. Right. Shots per game. Uh, Cristiano Ronaldo, 6.9 shots per game. Mario Balotelli, five. Uh, the only difference there is that wow. none of Balotelli's shots go in. He... None of them even, in, I mean, we saw QPR uh, the other day just blasting the ball hopelessly wide. I mean, just ridiculously bad shots. The kind that you would really be embarrassed to have produced yourself. You know, really. Uh, you know, anyone, just the, the, the most uh, overweight, uh, chain-smoking, grey-faced, 40-year-old park footballer would be ashamed of himself for hitting some of the shots Mario Balotelli hit at Loftus Road. It's unbelievable. This guy is supposed to be a, um, you know, a big, a big time, big time footballer. He's completely lost whatever it was that made him originally stand out as a player. He's lost it. It's it's lost it's, it or has uh, lo- 
Has he lost it in the Fernando Torres style of losing it, or is he Torres? I don't remember Torres being this bad. Oh well, I think he was. I mean, he was pretty bad towards the end of Liverpool. I don't think he was this bad at the beginning with Chelsea. Not that he's exactly had a resurgence either, but no, yeah, he's pretty poor. For well. Anyway, we'll chat to John Bruin on today's show. He was at the Emirates to see Arsenal's draw with Hull, Arsene Wenger, and particularly Narky form after that one. And Raphael Honigstein on Borussia Dortmund in crisis in the Bundesliga right now. It's time for Ken Early's report on sport. I mean, it is interesting to see the other players on that list. I mean, you've got Tevez, third, Lionel Messi, fourth, Robin, fifth. These are the top players. Sergio Aguero, seventh, Zlatan Ibrahimovic, eighth. These are the top players in Europe, uh, the guys who are scoring the most goals. Uh, so Mario Balotelli's position there is second on that list with no league goals is amazing. He's an incredible, it's an, it's an incredible thing he's got. Any praise for Balotelli for continuing to get in the positions to take those shots? Um, well, the problem is he's shooting from the wrong positions. I mean, he's getting into positions within 30 yards of the goal and then blasting the ball wide. Yeah. That's not a, That's not good play. I mean, I don't know, maybe, he, maybe he's aware of his position in this statistical table. <laughs> maybe that's what he's doing, you know? Oh, I've got a lot of shots per game. All the top guys take a lot of shots. I don't know. Um, we'll get back to him uh, and Liverpool generally, but I think and we were both struck by the same little thing from Aidan McGeady in the Sunday newspapers. Uh, this was Aidan McGeady. I saw, the, I saw this in the Sunday Times. But McGeady talking about what happened in Germany, um, how the team was named, how he came to be playing in that position. And it turned out that he only found out when the team was named. Yeah. And even then, Martin O'Neill didn't really explain what what was going on and he, and he explained that we were all there kind of talking about okay who you know what's this team where are we all playing sort of thing and and people started going hang on Aiden, are you playing are you going to be playing off the striker and he's like I think I could be and they're all kind of scratching their heads wondering what exactly you know what am I doing here and then eventually um, uh, who was it Steve Walford mm. comes around with the um, the set pieces and the exact instructions for each player and that's when it's confirmed to McGeady yeah you're playing kind of in, in a central um, attacking midfield role I thought that was unbelievable unbelievable I w- would have assumed that if you're playing a guy in a position he's not familiar with especially at international level you, you'd be training him in that position all day working every move and this is how, how it's going to work Aidan McGeady's our skill th- I have so much faith in him and putting him in this central position hmm. uh, he's going to know exactly what's required the players will do their best to get him into the game no, he didn't. He didn't. As you said, other players are you, are you, are you playing the centre. Best of luck, Aiden. Yeah, thanks, guys. Thanks, Shazy. I mean, it's it's very strange. I think because I mean the whole idea of not naming your team till an hour before kickoff or whatever is, presu- is, what it is. is presumably the idea there is to uh, well, Trap in fairness to him would name his team often the day before. No, he match. would, but in the sense of not necessarily being too clear on in, uh, precise instructions to individuals. Yeah. I remember James McCarthy came on uh, for might have been his debut. Whatever game it was, he either started or came off the bench. Well, I suppose he would have had to either start or come off the bench to have some involvement. But he was asked after, what were the instructions for Tony? Oh, he didn't really give me any. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Which isn't far off what McGeady is saying. Well, I, I think this is strange because if, if you want to sort of, if you want to keep your team secret till an hour before kickoff so that your opponent doesn't find out what your plans are, fine. But what's the point of surprising your own players with your plans? You know, I mean, what's the benefit of being able to make a plan if you don't actually... Make a plan or explain it to your players. Unless he maybe feels the players are a little too loose with the information. That could be Aiden it. Aidan McGeady tells somebody who tells somebody else. Although, I mean, it's, it's coming, it doesn't really matter, does it? It's coming as, as big a surprise to them as it is to, to opposition what our tactics are. You know? I mean, look, this is obviously Martin O'Neill. I, I just, I found it kind of remarkable that this is how, how it works. Yeah. I mean, you hear players talk about, say, you know, I've heard Rooney talk about Rio Ferdinand talk about this, where they're saying, you know, you want to know where you're playing, or I, you know, they like to think about the game in advance. The ball might come to me in a certain position. This guy might try to do. I'm, I know the player I'm going to be up against, and I know, you know, he doesn't like when you kind of get in tight and try to roll around him, or you know, this sort of stuff. Uh, you can't do any of that no. if you have no idea where you're going to be playing. Now, obviously, Martin O'Neill reckons that's that's a load of, you know. Players might as well be playing, I don't know, Tiger Woods golf <laughs> as as visualising uh, <laughs> certain, situ- certain game situations. A lot of old nonsense. I don't know. I mean, you can't argue, you certainly can't argue with the uh, with the result at the end of it. But I, I just thought, you know, in a situation like that, surely if, you, if you're saying to McGeady, this is going to be your job, 
surely it's, it's an advantage to tell him that on, on Wednesday and he's got a bit of time to think about it and prepare himself mentally for um, what for him is a, is, is a relatively new kind of role. In it. Certainly in a, he's, not, he's not played a position like that in a game of that magnitude. Yeah, against that level of opposition, which was always no. going to be an issue. Not a, not a great return to earth again for our hero from last Tuesday, John O'Shea. No. Ch- just chasing in vain a lot of attackers around the place. What a total disgrace. I mean, I, and it's impossible when, when it seems it's 8-0 to absolve anybody from blame. You know, it's coming John O'Shea's way, the same as everyone else. I mean, I did watch this match um, with mounting incredulity. And I don't think John O'Shea was particularly culpable for any individual goal. I mean, the goalkeeper, Minone, was certainly. Um, the right by Virginie was a disaster, really a disaster. The right centre-back, I should say. Um, uh, and in fairness, some Southampton players played brilliantly. Dusan Tadic, we, we mentioned already, four assists in one game is an incredible achievement, even against a side as bad as Sunderland were. Um, the the centre forward Pele is doing really well for them. Although we'll see how long. I mean, it's, I'm surprised at how I'm surprised how many goals that guy is scoring so far. I don't think he'll be able to keep up this rate of scoring. But you know, they've got then guys like uh, Saido Mane who, to come off the bench. Um, this guy is an interesting little player that they've got. They they bought him from um, Red Bull Salzburg, uh, where he was last season, part of this um, futuristic team. Um, one of these uh, a team that was impressed so many people with their energy and movement that people started going, "Hang on, they must be on drugs." <laughs> the uh, Austrian newspapers started printing. Well, this is all a bit funny, isn't it? How, where did they find the energy to do this? Uh, and then started pointing out that Red Bull, uh, Red Bull, who, who obviously are the sponsor of Red Bull Leipzig, they run a big uh, facility at a place called Talgau in Austria where they employ uh, the former team doctor of the Dynamo Berlin Sports Club, a guy who's been convicted of uh, uh, doping in East Germany. He was a massive figure in the East German doping program. Yeah, just to be clear, that's not to say that this team is being doped. Uh, no, but uh, it's, it is also to say that organizations who don't want people to wonder if athletes sponsored by them are doped shouldn't employ doping doctors. I mean, if you employ it, if you employ an East German doping doctor who's been convicted of... Uh, assaulting minors by assault in the sense of supplying them with uh, hormones, which in the case of these uh, adolescent girls proved to have disastrous physical consequences for them. Don't employ that guy. There's a lot of doctors out there. Why? Why do you employ that guy at your at this sports center where your uh, where your Red Bull athletes are going to be, um, are, 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 you know, invited to go for treatment? You know, for Di- what's it, what they call it, the Diagnostic and Training Centre or something. Roger Schmidt was the coach of that team. He's now the coach of Bayer Leverkusen, who are going really well in the in the Bundesliga. I mean, this was a, this was a team that did so well. Did amazing, like they crushed Ajax in the Europa League. They beat them home and away. I think it was 6-1 in aggregate. Um, they did so well. It's kind of a team that, a bit like Jose Mourinho's Porto or something, almost all the constituent parts of it, then, you know, the team sort of breaks up, but they all go on to have big careers somewhere yeah. else. So I think this guy, Mane, uh, is going to be an interesting one to watch for um, for Southampton. Uh, he only came out as a sub, but he did manage to he did manage to score in the game. Um, but yeah, I mean, Gus Poyet afterwards, Gus Poyet was remarkably calm considering the eight nil defeat that they was uh, he? He looked pretty. I thought he was remarkably calm considering angry. considering some of the other managers this weekend. Um, I mean, Vito Manone, the goalkeeper. Uh, was saying uh, Vito Manone, the goalkeeper, is saying that he wants to pay for the fans. Uh, there, there were two and a half thousand Sunderland fans. Uh, he says, um, uh, "I really mean that we should pay their tickets and travel. I will do everything possible. We should do it because we didn't work hard. We started the game well, but after we conceded, we threw in the towel, and I include myself. We threw in the towel. I mean, I don't know." That's that's a bad thing. Uh, that's a bad thing to be admitting. But I mean, when you look at, I think it was the sixth and seventh goals that were scored w- one after the other. I mean, straight from the kickoff, uh, Southampton ran up and scored the seventh goal. Um, it's just uh, it's just incredible. But as I said, Poyet, you know, he looked angry, but he was nowhere near the angriest manager over the weekend. Um, 
I don't know. I mean, I think we were going to play Harry Redwood. Let's actually play Gary Monk. I think Gary Monk was definitely the angriest manager uh, over the weekend. Uh, Swansea lost, not 8-0, 2-1. Uh, and this was Gary Monk uh, speaking to the BBC afterwards. Oh, I think I'm, the worrying thing for me is I've been stood in front of, of you guys. It seems week upon week now, talking about game-changing decisions against us. And it's always against us. And today was an absolute disgusting decision from the referee in terms of the penalty against us. Um, the lad, Moses, should be done for cheating, for diving, for conning the ref. And then we should have our rewards in terms of it should not be a penalty. And, and it's clear to see. The penalty for us was a penalty. Shawcross has his arms all over Boney, pulls him round, takes him to the ground. It's a clear penalty. But against us, uh, it's just becoming one or two often now. And it's a game-changing situation. It's not the odd free kick here and there. It's a, it's a game-changing decision. And the refs seem to be doing it week in, week out against us. And I'm, I'm very disappointed. I haven't heard from anything from Mike Riley in terms of the concerns that I've put forward, which I think is very, very poor, poor leadership. And um, in terms of ourselves, we get on with our job. We have to come again next week and hope, just hope, let's hope, because nothing gets done about it. Let's hope that we have um, some good decisions. Just going back to the incident itself, there was 26,000, 27,000 fans up shouting uh, the atmosphere. The pressure that's applied on referees, uh, I guess that's what makes them Premier League official to be able to deal with that mm. atmosphere in those situations. But it almost felt like a decision might come. Well, you just said it. How, why should it ever feel like that? You're a professional. You're professional in your job. Your job is to do it at the highest level. And this is the highest level. And if they can't do it, they shouldn't be there. So, that was Gary Monk. He was pretty angry. Now, in fairness, Victor Moses did dive. And, uh, and it was a pretty soft penalty that they had against him. Um, he, he went on to say, because the interviewer almost was there, thinking, oh, no, I mean, how many... I saw Mark Hughes afterwards, Mark Hughes saying, well, you know, the older you are, the more experienced you are in this game, you kind of realise you're just going to get yourself in trouble when you say certain things, and, you know... The interviewer was giving... almost giving Gary Monk a chance to get out, get himself out of trouble during the interview. Mm, yeah. He's, he's saying, oh, you do realise what you're saying here could get you in trouble. Why, and, why should you get me in trouble? He said, why should you get me... What have I said wrong? I haven't said anything about, you know, professionalism yeah. or cheating. And you're like, well, actually, you've called uh, Moses a cheat. You said the lad... Moses question should be the, done for diving, question, cheating, gunning the referee. Yeah, question the professionalism of the ref. The referee shouldn't be there. And, and, and accuse the head of referees of poor leadership. Yeah. It's a disgusting decision. It's always against us. Uh, I haven't heard anything from Mike Riley. Uh, his leadership is poor. You know, I mean, maybe that's what he thinks, but there's no point in pretending that he didn't say any of that. He did, he did definitely say that. Um, in the case of Harry Redknapp, the anger was directed at an individual... Uh, within his own camp, uh, not a man who played any part in the 3-2 defeat to Liverpool. Um, not the referee, uh, but one of his own players, Adel Tarapt, and this is what I read and had to say about him. He's not fit to play football, unfortunately. Um, he played in a reserve game the other day, and I could have run about more than he did. So, uh, no, I can't pick him. I pick people that want to try and deserve to be at a good football club like QPR and want to work and come in every day and want to work and train and show a good attitude. And that's what I've got today from the players. When he starts doing that, whether he ever can do it, maybe he'll get a game. I can't keep protecting people who don't want to run about and train and about three stone overweight. What am I supposed to keep saying? Keep, keep, keep getting your 60, 70 grand a week and don't train. What the, you know, what's, the, what's the game coming to? Three stone overweight. Three stone overweight. Now, that sounds like a lot. He's I a mean, big man. He's... he's I would say even if he's in prime physical nick, he's uh, a meaty sort of fella. Adel Tarabt, is it not just that he's got a fleshy face? Is he really that big? I mean, I don't know if he's, I don't know if he's that big. Uh, well, maybe, I mean, he's, he, maybe he's always three stone overweight then, because he always he, looks quite big. He has, in fairness, um, he ha- this is not the first time he's been criticised for being overweight. He's obviously a guy who, who struggles a little bit. Some, you know, some guys just struggle a little bit. They put on weight easily, you know? It's an evolutionary advantage. It would have been of, it would have been tremendously useful to add Elterapt in the Ice Age. Uh, unfortunately, he's now a Premier League football player. <laughs> it's, it's no use carrying this extra weight. Three stone sounds like a lot. Sixty, seventy grand. Is he really getting paid that much? I mean, there could. We don't know without knowing the exact information. There's potentially a lot in that Harry Redknapp statement to really make Elterapt very angry. Then again, he's made Harry Redknapp very angry. So, so maybe they'll be even. I mean, this game the other day was just was unbelievable. I mean, Liverpool managed to get away with a 3-2 win, and I've never seen afterwards such a downcast collection of winners <laughs> uh, almost apologising for 
the fact that they they won this match 3-2, which they clearly didn't deserve to do. Although, I mean, you say, I say they didn't deserve to. They probably did deserve to. I mean, it wasn't, wasn't as though they were actually worse than QPR. QPR were just as bad. Uh, and in the end of it, Liverpool had Sterling, who was really the difference between the sides. I mean, if it wasn't for Sterling, Liverpool would have lost. Um, no doubt about it. I mean, if it wasn't for some bad misses by Queen's Park Rangers in the first half as well, Liverpool would have lost. But Sterling was brilliant. I mean, just the... the you know, I mean, there was all this talk last week about his tiredness and so on and so forth. But, like, you saw in, the, in injury time in this match, he's already run 10,000 metres or so, and he's still able to make this sprint in the last minute to win the game for his team. Um, I think... He's really holding it together for them at the moment. He's yeah. the only one. You know, we, we've already been speaking about Balotelli. I mean, Rogers was asked again about Balotelli. Uh, and this time, I mean, previously he had he had criticised him. Uh, I mean, I saw a quote from Rogers over the, over the weekend. He said, I've only spoken about one player in terms of improvement ever, and that was Stuart Downing. This is what he was talking about uh, Sterling. He's basically saying, I've only criticised one player like that, and it was Downing. And I thought, well, he actually did criticise Balotelli quite recently as well. Although maybe he doesn't see Balotelli necessarily as one of his own players. Um, but the other day, I mean, what can you say? He actually didn't, he, he resisted the temptation to criticise him. There was no need. <laughs> there really was no need. Yeah, but there you go. Um, Chelsea? Yeah, happy Jose Mourinho. Um, this was the game last season at Crystal Palace where when asked what his team lacked, he wrote the word balls oh, yeah. on the notepad. So this time he wrote, what's the difference this time? And he wrote big balls on the notepad. So that's what he thinks his team have developed in the in the few months that has passed. It's always a tricky one for someone like, for anybody I would say, any performer such as Jose Mourinho, when they're, they're almost obliged to do that trick, you know, do that accent you do. It's, it's, it's obviously... Mm. Presumably, somebody prompted him there, saying, "Oh, what's the difference this time?" Or did he? Or certainly, he felt that he needed to make reference to that mm. moment from last. Well, he had the, the whole place was like falling around the oh, place yeah. laughing. I mean, it was just like there was gales of laughter. There was hysteria on the big balls. The, with the, the whole last year. the whole press room was just like right. uh, there was just oceans of laughter. Oh, yeah. um, and Mourinho sitting there with a smug little grin. <laughs> And, uh, I mean, he had done this big interview with Gary Neville um, where they discussed such topics as leadership. Mourinho says things like, um, my style of leadership is not a style. I try to have a leadership that is adapted to the reality. <laughs> okay, I mean, we're a lot clearer on what he's talking about. Last year I was feeling they were not ready for what I call a pressure leadership or confrontational leadership. The team was mentally and even tactically unstable. Mentally and even tactically unstable. Um, a pressure leadership or confrontational leadership, I think, means the kind of leadership where you uh, really, let's say there's plenty of distance between the manager and players, mm. apart from when the manager's up in your face, screaming in your face, breaking it, you know, like a Marine boot camp type leadership. I think that's what Mourinho is talking about there. Uh, he needs players who are able to stand up to that, both from each other and from him. Yep. That's how he decides whether or not they're uh, up for it. I mean, he's still, he's doing something actually Alex Ferguson used to do. Um, when he's talking about this team, which, you know, the Chelsea team, I think, is a pretty good team. You know, we all, we're looking at it going, this is impressive. You know, these guys stay fit. There's not many better teams. I, I would back them against anybody. Mm-hmm. I mean, I don't, I'm not saying I would back them definitely if they were playing Real Madrid, but I, they could certainly beat Real Madrid. There's no doubt about that in my mind. Um, but, you know, he he <laughs> he's saying, yeah, you know, we're a good side. You know, we've improved footballistically, you know, and so on. Talent is important, blah, blah, blah. But he's doing this thing Alex Ferguson used to do where he um, puts his past team, which is gone now, on a pedestal. Um, Ferguson always used to do this with the 93-94 double winning side. Talk about what men they were. He did, he wouldn't have said something like big balls. It wasn't the way people talked in the 90s. He, uh, he would describe them as real men. Yeah. Uh, oh, they'd start a fight in an empty room. You know? Robson and Inzi, Keno, Schmeichel, Brucey, Palesty, and all these lads, right? Was Eric, Pal- Eric, was Palace actually Palesty? <laughs> Pally. Pally, Pally Brucey, uh, and Eric the Keeney. King. Keeney, yeah. They, these guys, you know, would have absolutely beaten, uh, you know, whatever. Uh, and I'd, I'd always got the impression it was a way of just... I mean, the treble winning side was clearly a better team. I mean, it was a more exciting team. It had more. Uh, it it had more. I mean, it certainly did a lot better in Europe. Let's say, 
I thought it was a better all-round team. But yeah. it wasn't as though he ever wanted to say, yes, you guys are the best ever. You, David Beckham, this majesty has never seen the like of you before. Ferguson was never going to do that. So he always held up these, this kind of past ideal as a, kind of a, as a goal for the other team to reach. And I kind of get the, a sense of that from what Mourinho is doing with this, um, with this team. Uh, he says, uh, the team of 2005 had one plus in relation to this team, was, which was killer instinct. Every time we could kill matches, we killed matches. I don't remember matches where we had the opponent and didn't kill. He, he just uses the word kill so much. It's so, kind of something weird about it. He says, uh, the, you know, this team isn't there. We're more artistic, I believe. Uh, but in that team, I had guys like McAlady. He knew everything about toughness. Uh, people like Rob and Duff uh, were people with appetite to kill. You don't see Duff dribbling without having a shot. You don't see Robin attack the space without getting a penalty or shooting. We have some guys still in the line between the artistic side and the objective side. We need to kill more matches. So he's turning, trying to turn them into death warriors. He, 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 Jose Mourinho would love nothing better than to replace the Chelsea crest, that sort of kitschy line they have with a skull and crossbones. <laughs> he would love a death's head logo with Chelsea Football Club Written and that, that is literally what he would want. I mean, you remember the Diego Torres, uh, I mean, uh, maybe not the most objective source on Mourinho, but that, that uh, he, he encouraged the Madrid players, you're the bad guys here. Don't forget that. Barcelona, they're the good guys. You're the bad guys. And I want you actually to be that way. You know, I want you to be the evil, the Cobra Kai approach. You know, I don't want them beaten. I want them out of commission. This was Mourinho's outlook. He's trying to get the Chelsea guys to do the same thing. For instance, somebody like Eden Hazard. He tells Gary Neville, uh, he, he, Eden is out of context at this moment. He's a, he's a fantastic kid. Humble, humble, very nice, very polite. Selfish, zero. Egocentric, zero. He is fantastic. His father told me something I loved. I don't think it's a problem to tell you. He said, I have a wonderful son. He is a wonderful father. He is a wonderful husband. I want him to change because I want him to be a wonderful player. But I don't want him to change a lot. So basically, Eden Hazard's dad is telling Jose Mourinho to turn Eden Hazard into a, oh, into a father, killer. The father is the one saying that. The father's That's saying the okay. to, to... He's a little too nice, this yeah, young lad of he's, mine. He's, I brought him up too well. He's wonderful with his kids, absolutely lovely to the wife, takes it out onto the field, and I'm looking and I'm thinking, is this guy ever going to be top, top, top? Is he going to be top? Or can we teach him maybe to kill? Can we... Can we maybe teach him to kill? So essentially, he, he needs to get Eden Hazard the smell of blood in his nostrils. Eden Hazard needs to develop a taste for blood. That's what we learned this week. That's the end of Ken Hurdy's report on support. So he's almost like having a second captain in the team. Second captain, first captain, whatever. Richie Sadler's here, Richie, how are you? How are you, lads? How are you, lads? Richie, how are you, lads? How are you doing this week? I'm marvellous. Look at the joy on my face. Look how happy I was. What the fuck happened? <laughs> no, really. You know, what happened? When John was young, everyone in the city knew about it, but no one had seen him. It is not war and death and famine. It's not that at all. It's the opposite of that. It's persuaded of the world outside of that. That's why sport's important. Now, I've got to talk a bit about Arsenal's draw with Hull. Uh, you were speaking about angry managers. I don't know if Wenger was... Well, I think he was a little bit angry afterwards. You, you particularly noted this in the Match of the Day interview. Well, he, he was quite... Um, Jack, Jackie Oatley was interviewing him. Jackie Oatley was annoying him with a series of blunt, difficult-to-answer questions about why Arsenal were so bad. Rather than, you know, grit his teeth and, and go through answering these things, Wenger became, I thought, a little bit patronising. Um you, you you do not follow me very well. You know, listening to what I'm saying. You know, this kind of stuff. Mm. Yeah, like essentially, you don't understand. And then this sort of well, you know, you have to respect everyone's opinion. With this, like rolling his eyes as though it's quite clear that he doesn't respect anyone's opinion. <laughs> <laughs> you know, it's pretty obvious that you, you know he he knows this is just something he has to say. ESPN's John Bruin was at that game. Apparently, his mood wasn't much better in the uh, general press conference. John, he didn't seem in great form at all. Really. No, well, I mean, those of us in the in the written press, uh, we had to wait for an hour for him to speak to us after he'd spoken to Jackie Oatley, and he still hadn't calmed down. So um, it was strange because uh, you, you're at a game where Arsenal salvage a last-minute draw and Hull City concede a last-minute goal, yet the happier of the managers was he who had conceded the last-minute goal, Steve Bruce, who... 
you know, he's able to say how far they've come, that they've taken Arsenal that far. Whereas Arsene Wenger uh, did a very brief press conference for him and spoke. Uh, most of his questions were just sort of uh, obstructions of the questions that had been asked, um, such as somebody asked, uh, well, people say that uh, you haven't bought enough uh, defenders and you're lacking a defensive midfielder. And his answer to that was, who are these people? So that's the type of mood that he was in. Um, I think it's clear to me that Wenger is troubled by how poorly his team has started this season. This time last season, they were actually top of the league. Uh, and to see Chelsea go 11 points clear of them uh, was proof that what we saw in May when Arsenal won the FA Cup so far doesn't look like being the start of a new golden era of trophies. No, I mean, the problem also is that uh, when they look at the side, even teams like Liverpool who haven't exactly had a blistering start to the season are above Arsenal now. Um, the fact also that uh, I saw Stan Kronka was in the crowd at the Emirates uh, the other day, which which I don't think is a, is a typical situation. Might that have been contributing to, to Wenger's poor form, do you think? I'm not sure about that. I mean, it was the Arsenal AGM last week, so uh, he's certainly over here at the moment. Um, from what I understand, Wenger's relationship with him is distant, yet uh, Wenger is allowed to get on with what he wants to do with the club. Um, the controversy surrounding Cronker is that he took £3 million out of the club, um, which is causing some disquiet uh, among some of the more active fans um, it's difficult to put a finger on what precisely is irking Wenger, but he's certainly been angry for quite a few weeks now. He was as angry here as he was against Chelsea, you know, the afternoon where him and uh, Jose Mourinho were pushing each other. Um, things aren't going according to plan for him. I mean, you actually look at the Champions League and they got beaten by Dortmund, which doesn't look so good, does it? No. I mean, things are going according to plan, though, in a, in a sense, uh, which is that this is how he's planned things. Um, he's he's planned a squad where if Koscielny, his first-choice central defender, is injured as he was yesterday, he doesn't actually have anybody who can cover for him, so he has to play a fullback in there. He's got a plan whereby he's got to play this guy, Matthew Flamini, in almost every match because he's the only player in the squad who can play that position, even though he peaked as a, as a footballer probably five years ago. Uh, maybe even maybe even longer ago than that. This is all Arsene Wenger's plan. He, he's the guy who's put this plan together. Well, absolutely. I mean, Flamini's peak was probably when Arsenal got to the Champions League final in 2006, wasn't it? Um, yes. I mean, the, the decision to enter the season with two centre-backs is, is crazy. Um, he can argue, as he did actually at the Community Shield, that Callum Chambers is capable of playing in that position. Uh, Callum Chambers isn't actually 20 till January. Uh, Callum Chambers also was booked, which is quite an admirable, five five times in five matches. Um, interesting stat that Chambers wasn't actually booked playing for Southampton last season. What does that say about the protection that Arsenal's defenders receive from their midfield? Um, we have There's this concept of the broken team, and I think Arsenal fit it actually... If you look at Wenger's dealings in the transfer market, he bought Sanchez and Welbeck, without whom he would have lost the game on Saturday. Both of those have been goodbyes so far. I think Sanchez um, has been used fairly sparingly, yet he should play every game because he's an excellent player. He's well above Premier League class. Actually, I think he's a player that probably Liverpool regret not getting the most, but that's a different issue, I suppose. Um, yet defensively, and uh, maybe a player like Sami Kadira, even though he's had an injury, you have to say that really why Wenger wasn't looking to buy those players is a mystery to everybody but himself. It's an interesting point you make because the fact that he's made those Sanchez and Welbeck signings, which both both at the moment look good, so they look good at the weekend, would indicate that he he still has an eye for a player. This is one of Wenger's great qualities that he was able to pick players and and could spot them obviously with a with a a larger scouting network than a lot of people had in the early days, maybe when he was there. But he, that, he's still able to do that when he's... A, I, it's maybe just the parts of the team seem to be the issue for him. You can't really identify... Uh, I mean, there must be a logic to it. This, this is the thing with Wenger where we're, we're, it seems so blindingly obvious that we're all wondering, surely he knows what's going on. Surely he can see what the rest of us can see. Well, yes, but I mean, 
I think the thing with Chambers was uh, he bought a player who very few, if, if, if we're honest, very few people knew too much about Callum Chambers, yet he's able to say this guy can play centre-half, which he has done and played pretty well there. At that Community Shield, he was talking about how he could play there at centre-half. He also, I remember that afternoon, mentioned that Nacho Monreal was capable of playing centre-half. Now, uh, ahead of Diarmi's goal, which Flamini was brushed off the ball, probably illegally, um, watch the replay of that. and Watch Nacho Monreal's attempt at a tackle on Diame. That's not a centre-half tackle. I'm not sure what it was. It was almost as if he decided that he didn't fancy getting anywhere near Diame. Um, Wenger's, Wenger has always had that eye for a player, but it's always been a player a little further forward. We go back to the point that maybe aside from Sol Campbell and Colo Torre for a little while, he's never been that good at centre-backs because he actually inherited probably the best group of centre-backs the English football scene. Mm. Um, you mentioned Steve Bruce was uh, pretty happy after his despite only only drawing. I mean, he was assuring everyone that he actually was second. Um, for goodness sake, we're disappointed we didn't win at the Emirates, said Steve Bruce, uh, not sounding disappointed actually in the slightest, but made the point that it wouldn't have been possible to do this with the squad they had two years ago. He's been able to attract a, a completely new level of player. What do you think it is about Hull and Steve Bruce that they've managed to succeed in this respect where I mean I'm thinking here of, of Roy Keane at Sunderland and just the stuff that was in his recent book yeah. about how difficult it was to attract players to to you know Sunderland where the where the wind was 60 miles an hour on a good day um, he actually talks a little bit about Steve Bruce in there and, and describes him in not uh, not critic not critical terms as a kind of a politically astute manager uh, is is Steve Bruce? Do you think the key to, to why Hull have managed to succeed in attracting a high level of player where, where a lot of other promoted clubs failed to do that? Yes, well, I think Roy Keane. Steve Bruce is a better manager than uh, than Roy Keane. That's the thing, isn't it? Also, though Keane may not like it, um, Bruce's personality lends itself to picking up players from other clubs, uh, managers that he's worked for, specifically Sir Alex Ferguson, which Keane did himself. But also, if you actually go back to when he was at Wigan, look at the amount of South American talent, uh, players from other countries that he brought in. Bruce was was able, uh, astute enough to make use of, it's probably agents, isn't it, that bring these players through. But he's got a good network. I think Keane's greatest problem was he never founded such a network, possibly because uh, of his dislike of agents or because, let's face it, of his own personality. But if we go up to Bruce... Um, he's been a decent manager at just about every club that he's managed. Um, I suppose Sunderland is probably the biggest club that he managed. It didn't quite work out for him there. He was given several opportunities to sort it out. It didn't quite work out for him. But I think Bruce is one of those managers who, give him three or four years, he'll do a good job. There is a chance of stagnation. Um, He's very active in the transfer market and sometimes those don't work out. But uh, I think I think he was relegated with Birmingham, wasn't he? But other than that, a pretty decent uh, record as a manager. And actually, if you look at it, probably the best Ferguson protege when it comes to Premier League. Um, just one other thing, John. I know you're on your way to West Brom against Man United tonight. Now, there was an interesting piece came out a couple of days ago uh, by Rob Smythe about Robin Van Persie um, saying that, yeah, you know... He, maybe there were times when Robin Van Persie was a little bit jealous of all the focus that there is on Wayne Rooney, although maybe in recent weeks he's actually quite happy that people are questioning whether Rooney is still uh, up there as a player uh, because it's taken all the attention off his own um, terminal decline is the phrase that's uh, used in the piece. Um, what, what do you make of that? I'm sure, I'm sure you've, uh, you've, you've seen it. Um, do you think Van Persie is a player in, in trouble at the moment? Well, it's, it's movement, isn't it, that's the greatest problem with Van Persie when you look at it now. Um, it was all that first season when he arrived at United, we knew what a good player he was already, but he, it, it stood out for how, how decent his movement was and also the fact that he completed, he started uh, every one of United's 38 league games. Um, yet the following season, it was stop-start. Now, I mean, I think the both of us were quite surprised about how decent... He started the World Cup with the Netherlands, um, but then he tired only to recover 
weirdly enough, for the third place game. Since then, uh, I, I went to the Leicester game a few weeks ago and there were signs, uh, which are probably forgotten because of what happened later on in that game, of him and Falcao striking up a bit of a partnership. Um, Falcao, I suppose, as well as Rooney, has rather brushed over Van Persie's decline, such as it is. Um, maybe the Van Persie that we're seeing now is the player that was always going to be because, and Ferguson, Sir Alex Ferguson, got one great season out of him, whereas Wenger never really got more than half a season, um, two-thirds of a season, that type of thing. Um, he's a player, from from the information that you hear, that will only play when he feels he's fully fit. Uh, that's as opposed to players like Luis Suarez, Rooney himself. Um, and that probably creates a problem because... Uh, for for his team, for his managers, um, we w- we wonder how he's going to work out with Van Hal. Some funny rumours about that. Uh, combustible, possibly because of their Dutch temperament. Um, let's see about that. Let's see. Let's see what happens tonight, John. Enjoy the game. Thank you. Cheers. Yeah, that uh, Steve Bruce, the, the that line of analysis from of Steve Bruce's managerial career by Roy Keane, I thought was interesting. I actually thought overall Roy Keane was quite was very warm about Steve Bruce for most. Of oh, he was. Yeah, I mean, he didn't like I said to John there. He didn't. He, he it wasn't a crit. Like it would often be sound like a criticism to say, "Oh, your man's a politician." Yeah. You know yeah. what I mean? Oh, look at him. Oh, he always looks after number one. You know, he's he'd be clever now. He'd know which side his bread is buttered on. You know, in other words, the guy's a fake, a fraud. You know. That's often what that kind of uh, label would mean. But in Keane's case, he was saying Bruce was able to work. He said he often seems to work with difficult people. Yeah, and he also, I think the phrase Keane used was he managed upwards, something like this. He managed upwards. In other words, he managed the people at the boardroom. He managed the owners. Mm. He got on great with them. Whereas Keane didn't even think about that side of it, really. Keane no. just thought, well, I manage the guys below me. That's, that's, I'm the boss. <laughs> yeah. uh, and it, it dawned on him, particularly when Ada Short arrived, that actually you kind of have to work with these people. You've got to make sure that your boss thinks you're doing a good job. Yeah. It's, uh, it's just one of those realities of working in a hierarchical organization. Um, Steve Bruce has always understood that. Uh, and, and yeah I mean Keane I don't think was criticising Bruce at all in no. his book no. uh, he, he criticised him when there was one particular oh, actually I was about to go through another passage from Roy Keane's book I don't know if well, anyone, what was it I, I don't remember no he had, he had, he had to go uh, what, what he had to go at Steve Bruce over something to do with oh Steve Bruce had I think there was a player on loan at Sunderland or maybe it was Ipswich or whatever and Steve Bruce it was Steve Bruce's player and Steve Bruce demanded the player back for a league cup match which he was, uh, uh, he was it Begovic? Was it no? Not, not sure. Begovic. Not sure who. I can't remember. Jack Callback. It's, it's not. Yeah, I think it was Jack Callback. Not even a great story again. But mm. I do remember Keane was annoyed at Bruce in that one. But that was a fairly minor, minor part of the story, which I could have just glossed over. And we'll do now by talking to Raphael Hangstein. Raphael about Borussia Dortmund's difficulties. They lost two on a Cologne. That's their fifth defeat in eight league games. It's the worst situation in years for Dortmund, in the words of their director of sport, Michael Zork. Jurgen Klopp says that we play the kind of football which is absolutely pointless. This is at the post-match press conference, which seemed pretty harsh on his team there. A pretty serious situation? Yeah, I mean, certainly pointless um, as far as um, the table is concerned. Uh, but he, the original court actually said, we, we're playing football that makes no sense. Okay. Which uh, is even more damning because he uh, really looked like somebody who wasn't quite sure what to make of it. I mean, they played actually some really good stuff throughout the large spells, but then some unbelievably bad defending allowed Köln to score two goals. And it just fits the bill at the moment where a team, for some reason, just can't find their own rhythm, their 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 feet, their, their fluidity that they used to have. And uh, despite big names coming back, like Ilko Gunduan, like Marco Reus, Mkhitaryan, it just doesn't quite add up. And the amazing thing will be that they'll probably have a strong reaction again in the Champions League and, and probably win in Galatasaray uh, this week. But that, of course, doesn't really help them in the league where they're mid-table and uh, in danger of really losing out on the one main ambition, one main target that they absolutely must deliver, which is qualification for the Champions League. This is, uh, I think, the seventh season of, of Jurgen Klopp at Borussia Dortmund. It's the first time that he's ever had to face a situation like this, really. So how is he handling it? Um, well, he's been scratching his head and uh, looking a little bit clueless. Um, 
which is, I guess, an honest uh, response. Um, he doesn't quite have the answers. I don't think it's necessarily about changing things. If you see the goals that they conceded, um, you know, one is a ball b- bouncing around the midfield and nobody taking any control. The other one is Roman Weidenfeller, the most experienced player on the pitch, rushing out and completely failing to connect with a very routine cross. It's very hard to to understand what they can change about that. I mean, there are some inevitable calls for a plan B. It's become very fashionable, I think, to to look at managers not delivering and saying it's because they haven't got a plan B, but he doesn't believe in plan B. He believes that plan A just needs to be utilised a, be- a lot more better. Uh, the one criticism I think that is fair, and it's not a new one, is that Dortmund are are and, and will remain uh, an all-or-nothing team. They play with such intensity and with so much energy that when things don't work out for whatever reason, and it's, it's a hard system to play in, in more than one way, they then cannot fall back on a sort of a more routine performance the way that Bayern Munich or, or other big teams in the past have been able to develop ways of winning a game with 70-80% of performance levels. Dortmund have never been able to do that on the club. Uh, he would point to results in the past and say it doesn't matter because they still win more often than not. But at the moment, they seem a little bit lost. Well, I remember you wrote last season about the fact that um, something had begun to, to, a theme had begun to develop surrounding that uh, the style of play that you mentioned, the, the kind of intensity, the all-or-nothing intensity that they put into every game. And that it's actually physically and psychologically really wearing on players to ask them to keep doing that week after week after week for years. And that maybe this was at the root of the problems that they were having last season, which seems to have returned this season. Has that become, a, again, a topic of conversation? It's not a topic I, I think that Klopp is comfortable with. No, it's not, because he has dismissed suggestions that that style, that these tactics might actually have something to do when it comes to the list of injuries. But, you know, some people and even people at the uh, German FA behind closed doors are wondering if um, that kind of uh, all-action style is is perhaps to blame for some of the injuries that they have picked up in the past. Of course, injuries this season have meant that they couldn't rotate. Because they couldn't rotate, they have at times looked tired and a little bit short and they've had bad results as a consequence. So, I mean, these all, all of these things, I think, play a certain role. Physically, mentally, I think the team look a little bit tired. Of course, after a World Cup, I think it's also difficult for one or two players. Uh, Mats Hummels are, is in bad shape at the moment, doesn't seem quite know what he's doing. Maybe to, you know, to gear yourself up for another uh, fairly mundane season after the, after the World Cup is it's perhaps difficult for them and there aren't enough other players to make up for an individual loss of form. But Klopp will will not change. And Dortmund are in no position to to really doubt him. There is no sense whatsoever that he is in danger. And until you hear rumours of discontent from within the dressing room and, and players no longer buying into his system, he is absolutely safe. That hasn't happened yet. Um, you know, you wonder how long this can go on. I still expect him to bounce back very fairly quickly and and put this all behind them. But it is a dangerous situation. The fact also that Guardiola is there winning, cruising again with Bayern. I mean, they won 6-0 over the weekend. Um, does, um, I mean, it, it's an awkward thing for Klopp to have to put up with. I mean, here's Guardiola, who I don't think has ever made it an article of faith that his players must run more than the opposition in every game. I mean, when you think about it, that is a strange kind of um, uh, article of faith to have. Um, given that... Okay, everyone's only got a limited amount of energy, really, um, and that you know, I'm sure the kind of uh, the kind of school that Guardiola grew up in, say Johan Cruyff, he would always been saying, we should try and seek to run less than the opposition. We have to be more efficient than them. We, you know, if they if they get tired running all over the field, that's great. We're going to move the ball. We're going to be a little bit cleverer than that. So when we need the energy, we st- we've still got it. Um, it seems like that's a, in a sense, I mean, that's a kind of a the principle of efficiency as opposed to the principle of effort? Well, I think both managers would probably disagree um, that the, that this is a contradiction. Um, Guardiola, and this comes across really well in this uh, book that's come out by uh, Marty Paranao, considers passing without movement absolutely um, pointless. Um, so the running doesn't necessarily mean 
running after after the opposition, but it means running into positions and being in constant movement. And especially against deep teams, you could see last season when Bayern were a little bit tired and a little bit lacking sharpness towards the end of the season, how sterile and and meaningless the possession became. You saw it in the Champions League, you saw it against uh, Arsenal, against Man United, and of course Real Madrid uh, embarrassed them um, by just soaking up the pressure and, and killing them. With Klopp, the problem is, I think, that the pressing starts a lot higher. So if things don't go 100% according to plan, if the whole team doesn't do the job, then things fall apart. There isn't, there isn't a lot of um, solidity in midfield. There aren't many numbers in midfield because everybody's so far up pressing. And Obma Hitzfeld, being a very different kind of manager, very pragmatic, has put out this suggestion uh, last week that maybe he should play with three holding midfielders. Maybe he should just shore up the defence and... And Klopp would probably not go as far, but he did say after the uh, Köln defeat on Saturday that we have to learn how to defend again because we always score one or two goals, but we cannot always concede this many. And uh, I think that's where the, the real problem is at the moment. I mean, you, you, they always play with a bit of risk. They always play uh, with games in a, in a style that can you know, go lead to high-scoring games. But you need better quality and, and more sharpness where it really matters in front of the box. And that's not happening at the moment for individual mistakes, but also because the whole thing isn't quite clicking the way it needs to be with such a risky system. On the theme of pressing, uh, Raphael, I wanted to ask you just about Ireland against Germany from last week. We haven't spoken to you since that result. And David Ford, our goalkeeper, said that he noticed after Germany took the lead that they changed game plan. He felt under a lot less pressure with the ball at his feet and he noticed that the Irish defenders were suddenly allowed to uh, come forward with the ball, that Germany retreated somewhat. He was quite surprised by that, given the stature of the German team. He thought that they'd try to drive home the advantage a little bit more. What has the reaction been like in Germany? Is there? Uh, I know that the players are take, take umbrage at the idea that there's a crisis in the national team, but is there a bit of concern after the results against Poland and Ireland? I wouldn't say there's concern in terms of qualification is concerned, but there is concern that the team lost the way, as you described, so badly in the last few minutes. And, and the players themselves, certainly the more experienced ones, like Tony Cruz, like uh, Jerome Boateng, uh, and Mats Hummels as well, realised that something was happening that was very, very wrong, but unfortunately none of them seemed to be in a position to stop it. Uh, I mean, you saw a lot of balls back to Neuer, who then kicked it out and made it easy for Ireland to win it back and then have a go at them. Germany completely forgot to do what they did so well, if you remember the World Cup, where they, A, either used the lead to double up and, and really, as you say, um, take advantage and, and double their advantage, or if they couldn't, like France, like, uh, like Argentina, they managed to soak up pressure and really defend the lead with possession, being comfortable. But I guess the loss of quality that you saw simply by just one or two many players missing, certainly I think in key areas in midfield, ultimately led to a sort of collective panic. And it was more reminiscent of one or two performances that we had seen and, and we talked about before in the qualifiers for the World Cup, where most famously of all, of course, they squandered a 4-0 lead against Sweden by doing exactly that, suddenly panicking, and not keeping the ball. And it was a surprise to see them sort of revert to that old type, but perhaps understandable if, if, you, if you see just how well-organized and how courageous Ireland were, and on the other hand, how um, Germany perhaps didn't quite, weren't quite able to, to replace um, one or two players with, with the players that did come on late in that game. Yeah, Raphael, great to talk to you. Thank you. Cheers. I knew the person. Fluff, as he calls me Ravi, didn't know them. He said to me, what can you do that the boss hasn't done? You, the boss. And I said, I want to win the league, but I want to win it better. But there's no way to win it better. Why not? Only... No, 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 no. But that's the only hope I've got. We don't lost four matches. Then... But that, well, I can only lose three. You can understand that, can't you? Yes. Good luck. Fluff, as he calls me Ravi. Now that might that might be you know aiming for utopia, and it might be, might mean being a little bit stupid, but that is the way I am. I'm a little bit stupid regarding this type of thing. I'm a little bit of an idealist, but having said that, 
I want to be like me. Ken, do you share the doubts about the, you seem to, about the sustainability of Klopp's model of football? You mentioned Jose Mourinho earlier on mm. and his interview with Neville. Gary Neville asked him, what, what model of football, what is his philosophy, what, what's his model? And Mourinho was, what are you, ta- what are you talking about? I, I don't understand that question. People ask me that. But I mean, who's the opposition? Yeah. What time of the game is it at? I have different tactics, different models. I, I'm not a slave to one model. Whereas, whereas Klopp, I think, would be quite different, wouldn't he? Klopp seems to have a very definite idea well, of how the game of football needs to be played, certainly by the team that he's managing at the moment. The, the It is a fact that teams that run more collectively than their opponents are more likely to win. Yeah. At least it's, when I say a fact, it's something that has been measured and appears to be the case. Um, so what Klopp is saying is that we, we're always going to run more than them. Always. That's like number one thing that we do. And that will go a long way towards winning us this game. Um, but a team that always has to do that is, well, being asked to do more work than all the other teams. I mean, yeah, and it's, it's succeeded brilliantly for him. And who could deny, who could deny that this has been a, a really uh, effective thing for Dortmund? I mean, would, any, would anyone change the last few years at Dortmund? I don't think they would. But the question is whether it's a sustainable thing to do. I mean, when they were doing it, it was with... A really young squad, you know, the youngest squad in the in the league, um, really enthusiastic players who are prepared to do anything for their manager, and also have the physical capacity to to, to play that way. I mean, you 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 might be looking at a style of play which is really only possible if most of your players in your squad are under twenty five. You know what I mean? Once they get once they get to twenty five, they're already beginning to struggle a little bit with the with the workload. You haven't really got a choice though as a manager of Borussia Dortmund, do you? I mean, there's. You have to find. You ways can't buy compete, the best players, so you might as well make them as fit as possible. It doesn't sound like the most uh, sophisticated. No, system it's. In I mean, it's the 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 kind of innov- the innovative thing that they did. Well, I mean, it wasn't. It's it was slightly innovative to to, to realize. Oh, hang on, you know, because it was only a couple of years after sort of they started looking at Prozone and this kind of stuff, and they they were able to sort of measure. Okay, how how far how far has our team run compared to their team? You know, if you add up the distance that all the players have run, um you find that the team that runs more usually wins. And not always. I mean, the United States in the World Cup, for instance, always ran more than their opponents and it wasn't like they won the World Cup. But Germany also usually did as well. I think poor Michael Bradley, is that the name of the midfielder? Michael, Michael, Michael Bradley. Ran more than any player in the entire tournament. <laughs> no, mostly and, and after, a very bad mostly after his first touches. <laughs> like, <you> yeah. know, <laughs> that man covered nearly 80 kilometers <laughs> of Brazil just chasing his own first touch. <laughs> but, you know, um, <clears throat> with, with, with Dortmund, the, the, the kind of innovation was try and we can actually win the ball back in their half as well. It wasn't the case of when they get the ball, we all drop back and then try and win it when they come to our half. It's like we win the ball up there and then we only have one pass and we're in on goal. And what Klopp would say about that at the time was people were like, well, you can't do that. I mean, that's really, that's crazy. Because if you give the ball away, then, you know, you're really exposed defensively. He said, no, if we give the ball away, uh, if, we, if we lose the ball, we're 80 metres from our goal. So, pff. We, we should probably be able to deal with that situation. We'll talk to you again later on in the week after all the Champions League. Just very quickly, are you giving Liverpool any chance? It could be one of those weird European yeah, Anfield-type nights. You, where wouldn't, they, you, yeah, wouldn't, you wouldn't necessarily say they're definitely going to lose. Not not on Anfield. Um, you would imagine a few of them would, would probably play a bit better. But yeah, clearly, Real Madrid look a little... Uh, I mean, if you swapped Ronaldo and Balotelli over, would that make Liverpool the favourites? Yeah. Probably would. Uh, but... Ronaldo plays for Real Madrid, so, so I don't think <laughs> they're going to be able to do that. We'll talk to you again after all that anyway later on in the week. In the meantime, have a listen to the first show we put out today. Jerry Thornley, Shane Horgan on the uh, Champions Cup at the weekend and Matt Williams also on the goings-on in Australia where their coach has left and it looks like Michael Cech is going to be coming in for the tour of Ireland and of Europe. Uh, you can also listen to Killian O'Connor on that one. Mate. It was Killian O'Connor who won the county title at the weekend and wouldn't quite be drawn by myself and Murph's line of questioning regarding whether he craves an all-star, the, the all-star awards are being announced later on in the week. Have a listen to all of that. In the meantime, check out our Twitter account at Second Captains and the website is secondcaptains.com. Cheers for listening today. Thank you, Ken. Thank you, Owen. And we'll talk to you again soon. What is that? That's the second time it's gone off. They never go home. They never go home. They never go home, those, those, those boys. Mom 
Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Even on a budget, quality is non-negotiable. That's why Quince is the place to score high-end essentials at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Get your hands on buttery soft cashmere sweaters from just $60, bucks, Italian leather jackets, and so much more. And the best part about Quince? They exclusively partner with factories committed to safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Elevate your style without the elevated price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns.